Welcome back to You Here at First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Wagner. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere heard their music, movie, political, and pop culture news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. To be sure, there were long days and lots of pressure, but our colleagues made those epic shoots and overnight edits tons of fun. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told them. Welcome to season one of You Hear It First. Few MTV staffers have had a run like this guy. His first three assignments were the Ramones, the Replacements, and Pixies. And for 16 years of MTV News' heyday, Michael Alex did it all, from producing The Week in Rock and Choose or Lose to spearheading the launch of MTVNews.com. My MTV News story starts with this guy. I was a hapless, young, lifetime television web producer when I met Michael at the 1996 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. He hired me two months later to help take MTV News onto the World Wide Web, and I stayed for 18 years. But this is Michael's story, featuring Keith Richards, Lou Reed, David Bowie, Bootsy Collins, Perry Farrell, and much, much more. Do have a listen. I was a kid who played outdoors unless it was raining. I did have a small transistor radio because one of the guys in the Boy Scouts, his father worked for Sony, and his gifts, he got us all these like small Sony radios. And I would listen to WABC AM, which was one of the greatest radio stations of all time. Books have been written about it. It played everything. It played the Stones, the Beatles. It played James Brown. It played Aretha Franklin. It played Sly and the Family Stone. It played Led Zeppelin. It played Diana Ross. So I had a really broad, you know, not through any design of my own, just pure luck. I had a very broad exposure to popular music. Then one day, I think I'm 12 years old, and my family watched Channel 13 PBS on Sunday nights. And the documentary that night was Gimme Shelter, the Rolling Stones yeah. 1970 tour. At this time, my visual idea of rock and roll is seeing Beatles movies on TV or the Osmond Brothers or the Jackson 5 on variety shows. I've never seen rock and roll anything. Gimme Shelter, for those who don't know, begins <laughs> with Mick Jagger, full camera, performing Jumping Jack Flash at Madison Square Garden. My life, without a doubt, changes during two and a half minutes. Absolutely does. I beg my mother to get me a Rolling Stones album. She buys me a Greatest Hits cassette. And I probably listen to that end-to-end every single day for several years. I mean, I would just play, it was a two-record set. I listened to it every single day. I had a guitar that I was learning to play. So the Rolling Stones became really my guide. And that Beatles Stones thing, I was always a Stones person. I liked the darker, harder stuff. And the Beatles yeah. are better songwriters, but I prefer listening to the Stones. Still, then I discovered rock and roll television. And then I used to see the David Bowie from the Hammersmith in London, and your mind explodes there. And it really, the, the rock concert shows, FM radio, when I got a little older and got an FM radio, Getting better at guitar, this is this was my life, you know, until I'm in my teen, late teens and early 20s in New York City. How did you learn about artists? What was the context for artists and information? My parents were big on news. So we got three newspapers and two news magazines, and we were CBS news people. So I understood about reading and watching. 
So there was Rolling Stone magazine and there was Circus magazine. And I got subscriptions to these, uh, which you'd read cover to cover, and Guitar Player magazine. You'd read them cover to cover. So you'd learn about everything because if they wrote about it, it must be important. Right. And there's the stuff you're really interested in. Uh, okay, so I care about Deep Purple and Black Sabbath and the Stones. But then you learn other things just through osmosis. This is how I learn about Bootsy Collins when I'm 14 years old. I wow. Look at the guy. He looks like he's from outer space, but they wouldn't write about him if he wasn't important. So for years, I'm reading this stuff. And then I learn about uh, used record stores carry old magazines. So you can look up, you can find old issues. You want to read the first interview with Led Zeppelin or things like that. You can find these things. And I, I love this. I sopped it all up. Uh, and became, you know, just another music geek, which was also, I lived in deep Queens. I was bridge and tunnel. I didn't live anywhere cool. I didn't know anyone cool. To go to see a show took an hour and a half one way to get anywhere. So being uncool, what you could do is read, you know, and listen to the radio and talk to your friends. So talking about and sharing, you know, thoughts and arguing and agreeing about music, this is a skill just born out of fandom, you know, picked up pretty early. You went to film school, right? I went to New York University, uh, film and television, got my degree there. One of my classmates was Martha Quinn, who at the time, she was kind of known because her mother was a television uh, financial analyst on television, Jane Bryant Quinn. Oh, sure. Yeah, Jane Bryant Quinn's her stepmom. So she was there. NYU was great. I mean, learning real television and film production, but also there were the art classes, the experimental classes where you got to mess with stuff. And this was... The, these ended up being some tricks that stayed in my pocket for a decade yeah. <laughs> before I got hired at MTV. And most of them still stayed in my pocket, but a few they let out. But yeah, I'm formally trained in visual you know, media and pointed cameras at anything and everything and loved mixing music. This is before MTV comes out. That was my NYU experience. Best part musically is I'm going to school in the village, which means I do end up at CBGB and the oh. bottom line and the mud club and places yeah. like this and, and do... Uh, by virtue of being there and other kids grabbing me and dragging me, you know, you must see this. What is your journey? You know, the sort of steps. Well, first I worked here, you know, for me, it's like, well, I had this gig at Rolling Stone. Then I went to Lifetime and then I happened to meet Michael Alex at the Democratic National Convention. Thank God. And he's the first man I say hello to. You were looking for the ISDN line from Verizon. Unbelievable. Yeah. I always try and explain what an ISDN line was to people, you know, but what were your steps and how did you come about the place? Like, how did you see it and how did you get there? NYU hooked me up with a very nice internship at uh, CBS News for the local Channel 2 News. I worked in the investigative reporting unit. When my internship ended, I pitched them a, I wrote them a, like a, a proposal for a five-part set of reports because I wanted them to welcome me back. They hired me for the summer to do it. It won an Emmy Award. What? And all of a sudden, yeah, my junior year. So all of a sudden, I'm still in school. Now, the bad thing is, now I can't get that internship back because I've worked professionally, yeah. but, but that led to a lot. Um, I worked on some other things that channeled at WCBS. Then someone who worked there became the news director in Baltimore, Maryland. I worked television news in Baltimore, where, as, uh, where I worked with, amongst other people, an up-and-coming uh, reporter and talk show host named Oprah Winfrey, oh, who I worked with a lot. Wow. You know, I know, you said like Martha Quinn, Oprah, like I met Martha once in college. Oprah I worked with like every other day for a year and a half. Wow. Uh, she wasn't the queen of the world, but she was a personality. So I worked there for a while. Then the New York people hired me back. 
Then, then I kind of got tired of being uh, an investigative journalist. I liked the television more in part, more than I liked uh, digging into things for weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. I liked consuming that. I didn't want to do it. I worked on some television commercials, worked on some movies, worked on some financial stuff. And then one day, uh, the company I was working for, the biz dev person says, I want you to meet this person. Her name is Linda Corradina. Uh. Linda's the news director at MTV. Then she says, Linda, this is Michael Alex. He's a rock and roller and he's a good producer. Yeah. So Linda's like, call me. Now I had thought about MTV before, but early on it was like, they didn't pay well. I like other things that I was doing, but now I'm 29 years old, which means my life is over. I'm 29 <laughs> years old. I'm going to turn, this is the story. I'm going to turn 30 and this is horrifying. My bands are never going to make it, right? I'm not getting signed. It's not, ha it's not happening. I'm going to be 30 years old. Where's the rock and roll in my life? So I said, I better go work at MTV, having no idea that this is even possible. But I interview, I interview with uh, Linda, I interview with Dave, I get picked up to do to, for a tryout, which turns out okay. And then they call me for, which was, uh, I was recutting something that produced by Elisa Bellatini on the Ramones. Then the second shoot is, I'm going to go do something with the replacements. And I decide, okay, I'm going to do this for six weeks, you know? This is, I, I just, I just assume they're going to keep hiring me, which, which they did. But I just, I'll do this for six weeks. I'm going to turn 30 and then I'll go do something else because I need to do other things because I like other people's money. But I'll, rock <laughs> out, but I'll rock out for six weeks. This turns into 18 years, as you know. Wow. Yeah. Well, it became, you know, so the replacement shoot, this is my first shoot. I'm with Kurt Loder, who I read for like yeah. the previous 15 years of my life. Kurt's great. We go to do the replacement shoots. You know, Tommy Stinson says to me, I'm producing this, this interview is not beginning until you start drinking. <laughs> okay, now, I'm from CBS News. I have, I have standards. I asked Kurt, is it okay if I have a beer? Kurt says, <laughs> So Stinson hands me a Heineken, you know, I point the cameras, we roll. And it's fantastic. And then it's the replacements, and then we cover the show. The, my third thing, my third shoot, second with Loader, is a new band. I hate their name. I don't even want to meet them. They're called the Pixies. How oh, God, stop it, dude. How, how stupid is this going to be? Some band calls themselves the Pixies, but they give me a tape of them performing in London and the collection of Surfer Rose and Come On Pilgrim. Oh. And, I, you know, and I'm listening to this stuff and I'm watching the video and it's unbelievable how great they are. I'm already a jaded guy. I'm 29 years old. I'm done with the idea of new rock and roll, right? And then we're going to work with the Pixies, who were terrified of, of Kurt and MTV. They were oh, so yeah, new. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm loving this. Because they're simultaneously, like, I mean, between Black Francis and Kim Deal, who look nothing like rock and roll, who are two of the coolest musicians you'll ever know. Yeah. It was very exciting. And around then, I'm starting to think, okay, maybe it's going to be more than six weeks. <laughs> Oh my God, dude. I'm so glad I asked. That's yeah. the most unbelievable first three assignments on earth. And then here's the fourth. This is, I, I don't have to do the interview, but they want me to watch a movie and write about it. The movie's Heathers, you know? <laughs> I'm sitting in the movie theater, you know, what did you have a brain tumor for breakfast? I'm being paid to watch this. Yeah. I immediately made my life. I split it in half. I was doing half my work for MTV, half my work for everyone else. 
I'm running all over the city. I'm working actually five, six, seven, eight day weeks. It's all deliverables, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, I'm at Wall Street. At 11 o'clock at night, I'm at, I'm at MTV and I'm just running around doing everything. I did that for several years. So I both had like the lifestyle I wanted and the rock and roll that I wanted. Yeah. And ultimately I stopped paying attention to my other clients. Yeah. And then I got a staff offer. So, I mean, that's the, uh, that's what happened. In 1989, MTV makes, produces maybe five shows. There's The Week in Rock. There's Yo! MTV Raps. The animation show, Liquid Television, is in production. Right. Buzz is in production. Then there are some, you know, like there's the metal show. There's the alt, the alt show. There's a dance show with Downtown Julie Brent. But these are all video shows. The channel is basically, any given day, playing 20 to 22 hours of music videos. Yeah. All of MTV is on two floors of a medium-sized building. And even if you don't work with these other people, I know Ted Demi and, and Moses Edinburgh at Yo. I know Mark Pellington, who's yeah. making buzz, you know, you know, from On Air Promos. I know Carol Donovan and Rick at uh, The Metal Show. You knew everyone because there weren't, there weren't that many offices. Yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it, it was a small place. You see this on Facebook now, all the old school people. We love each other just because we remember each other. Yeah. Uh, then out in the world, when you talk to bands, I mean, it was, everyone was watching these few shows. Mm -hmm. So stuff like The Week in Rock, most people didn't watch it, but if you watch it, it was everything. You know, I mean, that was the one show that sort of replaced Rolling Stone magazine in terms of topical news or even the, the, the news breaks during the day. So it was simultaneously very small, but it seemed enormously impactful. And uh, the fun thing in, in those first couple of years, I remember you'd go to interview anyone and they would ask about something they'd seen on the show the week before. And you knew about it because the newsroom was not very big. You know, we in digital, we took up more space in 1515 than MTV News and specials took up at 1775 Broadway. I mean, it was oh, just, wow. yeah, there was you know, like 12 people. In those early days, you knew you knew well. You knew what everyone was doing. You knew, you were in everyone else's stuff. You would ask producers to shoot things for you. You know, you're going to talk to Eric Clapton. Can you get a soundbite from my Jimi Hendrix special? You're going to yeah. talk to this person. Can you ask about that? It was a tight place. There was constant invention of the medium itself. So, can you talk about how, like, either a moment in which you really felt like you got to push, or the kind of discussions that would happen, or the way that rules were bent or broken? In those first two years, I am there for my head, right? I can, if they were to fire me, I would immediately be making more money. So I'm there for my, <laughs> but this, and this leads to stories that you've heard, but I'm there for myself, you know? And I start pitching Dave Sorolnik on some stuff, many of which had the wisdom to say, no, that's a terrible idea. Because I, like, I wanted to do a um, Namjoon Pike. I wanted to stack monitors hit play tapes and have different sound, sound bite on this television, something on that television, and then rescan the whole thing. Horrible idea, but I thought it would be fun to try. In, in other cases, I remember like going in and saying, these are all my sound bites. I'm not giving you a script. I'm going to make this up in the edit room. Uh, Glenn Bronca piece. And Dave said, go for it. And 20 years later, Glenn Bronca complimented me on the piece. That was fun. But... The ability to try stuff, and Dave, one of the things I was really, you know, cared about with him was if you believed in it, and you had, a, and you could sell the pitch, and you could take no as an answer. He would often say yes, yeah. or sometimes say yes. So trying things, messing with stuff, pushing conventions, 
was something we were supposed to do. And in the first, in my first year at MTV News, like the Weekend Rock wasn't solidified. We we would run some segments from this guy called Toby Radloff. This was like third party produced comedy. Or sometimes Kevin Seal would come on. It wasn't quite news, but he was entertaining. So we were, the show was being messed with. It was being experimented with. Yeah. We had Kurt Loder, who was this sort of editorial just center. And that, that really, everything sort of hung around him. His sensibility to either work with him or played off of him, or he would laugh at it. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, so that provided a sort of like a core, you know, a center note. But I, I certainly was trying things and messing with stuff. And I winced when I look at my reels. There was some stuff which seemed psychedelic to me then, which now it's just sort of, you had to be there at the time. <laughs> right, right, right. I got thumbs up then. Now I would like, I don't even want to show it to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, yeah, there was experimentation. There was trying stuff. And you could also mess with the scripts. And this is another thing. You know, I early on just sort of playing with language. And I mean, Kurt was an inspiration. Kurt was a fan of Hunter Thompson. So there was, and we, and we also had, we had, uh, got to remember his name also from Rolling Stone magazine, working at MTV. I'm going to remember his name later. But there was real permission to be, you know, to try something and get nuts. You know, people like Judy McGrath encouraged you to take chances. So in those early years, before we started being as a channel successful, it was a lot of fun. What's a moment where you really pushed for an artist that you landed and were stoked about? I was often assigned to deal with older artists or louder artists or people who could be difficult. Purely by virtue, I was five years older than most of the staff there. So I could handle or push back against yeah. the people that maybe a 24-year-old could not push back against. Yeah, yeah. So I was enjoying that an enormous amount. Uh, the first artist that I remember pitching and pitching and pitching, no one has heard of. His name is Michael Hedges. Oh, sure. Uh, one of the greatest acoustic guitar players of all time. And I had to pitch him three times, but we got him on air. And it was a great piece. You know, I think Laurie Anderson I pushed for. That was more of, I was like, yeah, who cares if anyone knows her? She'll be cool on camera, yeah. you know? I was not someone who knew the great new band and I discovered them first for what you'd consider mainstream MTV. But I'd get assigned to cover Jane's Addiction, which would be a perfect example. It's like, yes, me and Perry would be different than Perry and someone else. Yeah, for sure. I love Jane's Addiction. Uh, I those remember. Are, those, yeah, but, <laughs> but, you know, there was a day, Perry, I almost punched him in the face. He almost hit me. It all worked out. But uh, it, was, it would be interesting. And also getting to tag along with, as opposed to selling, you know, if Kurt was going to go work with the Rolling Stones, I was the good producer because I knew pretty much, I knew 90% of what Kurt knew about the Stones, you know, and, uh, and I could back that up. So I mean, that was the early jaw-dropping experiences with me. What was the moment when you went from seeing him on Channel 13 to meeting him and working with him? So they've got the Steel Wheels album and they're going to go on tour in like I think late August or early September. And I get sent to Philadelphia to RFK Stadium yeah. to shoot them rehearsing. You know, I'm not going to be talking to them, but I'm going to cover the rehearsal. I'm going to enter the Rolling Stones. And I remember uh, there was a guy, John Bendis, who was number two in specials, documentaries. He walked up to me this one day and said, so what are you up to today? I said, I'm going to Philly to like cover the Rolling Stones rehearsing. He just like, Drops his bag and said, I'm coming with you. <laughs> Two Rolling Stones fans. And we're in, and I got photos of this. And we're in the orchestra pit and we're in the side of the stage shooting as, as close as Rolling Stone security. And there's nothing like Rolling Stone security. As close as they will allow us to get. But it's fantastic. 
all of a sudden I'm basically in the third row. And there's no one standing in front of me on the side of the stage, listening to them rehearse. They're not all out, but it's insane. And they have a new backup singer named Lisa Fisher. Who at first is like, oh, who's this chick? And then she sings, she's like, oh my God, because her voice is bouncing off downtown Philadelphia. Yeah. So that was just spending four hours with them. And also they're very much business. You know, I mean, Mick is directing, Keith's got the band. Charlie Watts actually talks when no one's putting a microphone in front of him because he's very much a part of the visual piece of it. And they sound like the Rolling Stones, which is insane. Yeah. Then maybe six weeks later, they're doing interviews and I'm producing, I'm, you know, Kurt's interviewing Jagger. I'm just I'm pointing things out to him. I mean, Jagger is so focused. I don't really even want to talk to Jagger. I said one yeah. thing to him. I did end up doing a bunch of things with Keith, which was, that he was my bucket list when I went to MTV. There was only one person I had to meet, only one person I had to get a photo with. And that happened a bunch of times. But that year and getting around those people and then not being disappointing, you know, mm, right. as you know, you meet your heroes and sometimes they're not disappointing. Sometimes you're talking about someone, not someone, you're talking about Keith Richards or David Bowie uh, in my life, they exceed expectations. But having had those experiences for real. Yeah. I mean, you're, if you're interviewing Keith, I'll just share this. He's talking to you. He's talking to the producer. He's talking to the sound guy. If there's someone in the room managing something, when he's speaking, it's just in his inflection. Everyone in the room is included. And it's not with his head. He is just, this is how he plays stadiums. He has no problem playing stadiums, right? He can reach the people who are a quarter of a mile away. It's how he is. He's that cool and he cares. You know, that was some neat stuff. Would you say that was the peak artist experience? The Stones were my first. For sure. I mean, I predict John Norris interviewing Ringo Starr, just being in the presence of a, right. a presence of a Beatle. And I'd been in MTV maybe three months. Wow. And another thing you know is you become not jaded, or maybe you do, but you become accustomed yeah. to being around world famous people. Okay. So th- three months there, we're talking to Ringo Starr briefly. I am almost paralyzed. <laughs> Two years later, I interview Paul McCartney. I'm chill. And I'm interviewing wow. McCartney, oh. which was very different. So Ringo Starr was sort of alarmingly, this is a Beatle. My next big sort of personal experience off the top of my head, this would be interviewing David Bowie. Because I'm not I'm not with Loader. You know, it's I am MTV at this thing. I'm the, wow. It's me yeah. and the crew. And this really became, this was the fun part of the job, being a segment producer for The Week in Rock or for MTV News, is you show up someplace and you got the mic cube. And so... You are MTV, and that was the most intimidated I'd ever been, you know, actually interviewing someone ever. Combination of him being him, if you've ever been up close to him, he looks like a piece of art. His, yeah. his eyes are, in fact, different. There's one uh, fully dilated pupil, one that's not. He's completely focused on you. He's highly intelligent. He's listening yeah. to everything you say. If you trip up, unless he's got something charming to add, it's awkward. It's the most nervous nervous I've ever been. Uh, But it was a great time. Which tour was that? Uh, That was his greatest hits tour. I think it was called Sound and Vision. Yeah, I interviewed him in May of 1990 in Orlando, Florida. And then I got to, of course, see the show (laughs) from anywhere I wanted. Uh, Yeah. yeah, As you know, the seats you get or where you get to be during a concert when you're with MTV is very different. (laughs) To say the least. I I mean, lots and lots of people you know, Lou Reed, you know, usually the the, the, the jaw droppers were the people I grew up with. 
Lou Reed, James Brown. Then there's people I never expected. I mean, I was not an Al Green fan. To be in Al Green's presence is to be illuminated by a special light. I'm not kidding. (laughs) You can ask Loder. We both had the same experience. We were like, oh, my God, who is this guy? Jeff Beck, uh, who fortunately was so humble that I was able to be in his presence. You know, the greatest living guitar player at the time for a very long time. Yeah, Lou Reed began, that was, began to be an intimidating thing. And then I disagreed with him. And dare I tell Lou that I thought he, something he said was wrong. And I did, and he was great. Uh, what did you tell him was wrong? <laughs> he was down on live, on live text video at concerts because he, he, he thought it was just like a bad idea. And I said, Have you, I think Mark Pellington's stuff in Zoo TV is actually quite good. Yeah. Long, long pause. He goes, yeah, you're right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. but, but then I also, we bonded later when he found out I was a Laurie Anderson. I'm talking about Laurie Anderson. He's yeah. there, he's married Laurie Anderson. And he goes, do you like Laurie? And I, this is this is a fun story. I said, Lou, I got to tell you, I'm a Lou Reed fan. I buy her albums, go to your shows. If I ever have to choose between you and her, it's Laurie every time. Oh, uh, dude, that's and, and this, Well, this is true. It was completely true. I love yeah. Laurie. And when I said this, he got it. After that, we were we were like friends. The interview finished. He was showing me effects boxes. If you know anyone who's worked with him closely, he's a you're, let's talk his guitar players. He's a gearhead, and you start talking gear with Lou Reed, everything else goes out the window. I mean, we were actually sitting on the floor plugging boxes into a spring oh, wow. reverb that he just bought. While Annie O'Hayan, his publicist, is like, "Lou, we have to go. <laughs> Lou, we have to go. Michael, leave him alone. I'm not getting up." <laughs> Lou's saying, "Hang on, I'm hanging out with Lou." Hey, it's Benjamin. In our post-pandemic world of hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there is a lot to manage, and most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique creative coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational strategy, transformation, communication, and collaboration. You'll gain the skills to create, communicate, and collaborate effectively, face uncertainty with confidence, lead through transformation, and facilitate a positive, respectful, and inclusive work culture. So if you, your team, or organization need help building your business, sharpening your skills, managing yourself or leading others, or you'd like me to conduct my Managing Uncertainty workshop for your group, visit BenjaminWagner.com or email at BenjaminBWagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. What was like a super random but surprisingly excellent assignment? Cowboy Junkies, that was uh, oh, Margo nice Timmons, hubba hubba. Margo is simultaneously much more beautiful in person than oh, she's in any of those photos. Happily, she is such a geek. And she knows she's like, she's such a regular, goofy. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is all, she's Margo Timmons. She's tremendous. That it becomes okay. Because she's just yeah. talking. The Cowboy Junkies, that was an extraordinary experience. I always loved working with Public Enemy. Difficult, you know, um, intense. But, but you know, those, those gigs could be really satisfying. And the concerts were very exciting. Ice-T playing at CBGB, that was nuts. And then Chuck shows up backstage. That was, he just, he, this was, he was not there to be interviewed. He was there to, to like, thrash out with wow. Ice-T. That was a, some great times. I did an interview with Senator Alan uh, Simpson of Wyoming. Uh-huh. 
that was one of the most illuminating political conversations I'd ever had with anyone ever. He explained how people could fight all day and yet pass legislation. Mm-hmm. And I walked away just feeling, you know, enlightened. Is there a situation you experienced where it was a real challenge and you had to overcome a real, you know, either gap with the artist or a gap with the weather? Or- uh, Sinead O'Connor was difficult. And I loved Sinead O'Connor. Now, she was, a lot of that is just sort of her yeah. uh, combination of her being unfiltered and not, she was really not built for primetime interviews. And yeah. I wasn't the person to do it if she was. Is this line in the Cobra era? No, no, this is, uh, I do not want what I haven't got. There you go, right. I interviewed her twice in there. Uh, you know, and strongest handshake in rock and roll. Uh, huh. She, uh, you know, the bones break in your hand. You know, I was a fan. It just didn't go easily. Uh, producing Kurt with Paul Simon. Paul Simon. Paul Simon has got a certain level little man's complex, which is insane. <laughs> We're in his office. Behind him are like 15 Grammys. And he's, I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, yeah. But he wanted me to sit down and shut up and he just wanted to talk to Lotus. So I sat down and shut up. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I just like commented, people would ask me. This happened when I worked with Bill Cosby once too, not MTV. When someone was unpleasant, they said, so do you not like this person? I said, are you kidding? The level of greatness in the earth that I just experienced, I didn't care if Paul Simon was nice to me. The magnitude of art and doing it again and again and again and again and again for decades of greatness, I'm in awe. I'm perfectly happy to be here while he treats me like a dick. (laughs) But I am because I have the privilege to listen to him explain things that most people never get to hear. And as you know, most of the interviews never end up in the shows or on air, but I've heard it all. You were the primary driver launching MTV News in the digital age. What's the origin story? Like, I kind of only know the part that I was invited into when I was a kid. MTV had, the, the channel, had a team called the New Technology Council. And once or twice a year, people from different departments would get together and talk about new media technologies on the horizon and what we might do. This is always interactive television. Someone always thought there was going to be a situation where the audience would get to pick how a show goes, and nothing ever came of it. In 1994, America Online, it wasn't AOL, it was called America Online, they're they're building out and they're throwing money at certain brands that they want to have as early media partners. And so MTV gets a portal on on America Online, it wasn't even a dot-com. They wanted certain things, and someone, when the deal was cut, says, we'll put MTV News scripts on that. Me being from the New Technology Committee, and me being, at that time, I'm supervising producer of MTV News. I'm overseeing the segment producers, the writers, and the production of Daily News and The Week in Rock. So I've got to get someone, Rhonda Markowitz, mostly, but I need to get someone to take the scripts and retype them onto a floppy disk, (laughs) which I would hand to someone who worked in MTV's new technology department, who would upload these scripts to AOL. And so this is what we did. We were uploading scripts to AOL. Somewhere in this, I start to take an interest in it, and I see the words www. I may have first seen this on an advertisement on the side of a bus. I knew something was there, but I had no idea. And I would send emails to those addresses, and nothing would come back. If I sent an email to www.amazon.com, I didn't get a response. I decided, I, somehow I learned that there's something called the World Wide Web, which I'd never seen. And I wanted to hire someone to help with that. I ended up hiring someone named Brian Levy. He got on my uh, my Mac laptop and he brought me, he took me to Yahoo. 
And he said, this is a search engine. You look for things. And he, he typed a few things in. I type in music news. Three or four answers come up. I forget what the sources were at the time, but three or four answers of websites that have music news come up. This meeting ends. I walk down the hall to Cyrulnik's office, and I say, we have a problem. We have a problem. We have to get more involved in this. The first thing we do is we start putting special things on AOL and talking about them on air. Uh, the very first thing we did was, I think it was a set list from an REM show. You know, for the complete set list, go to AOL keyword MTV News. Then it was packing instructions for Woodstock 94 for complete uh. instruction. This is something you couldn't put on air anyway. For huge lists of stuff, we would put them on AOL and then on air, Kurt or Norris or Tabitha or Allison would get on and say, for more on this, go to AOL keyword MTV News. And we started pushing. This was our first original content. Uh, it was These were large sort of bits of, of piles of text that we would put on AOL. I've hired Brian to do that work, but secretly because he says he knows how to build a website. That's great. So he starts to work on it. The people who are running MTV New Technology and online say they don't want us to build a website because they want to build a website. So yeah. we're told to not do this. I say, okay, Brian, listen to me. Brian's upset. I said, Brian, you're going to build an MTV News website. And you're going to keep it to yourself. And we start, and someone finds out we get in trouble, and they say, stop. And I say, stop. We keep doing it. <laughs> Ultimately, I have Brian build a We Can Rock website. Website. It's completely wired. Completely wired. We put it on a, on a laptop. This is a, when you, to walk around the computer is the same. And I walk into Cyrulnik's office, Dave's office. I said, Dave, you know, this is what Dave was grateful. So, you know, they told me I couldn't build a website. I said, hey, I want you to see the We Can Rock website. I just want you to see it. And it was the show. It had text files. It had music files. It had video files. This is 1994, early 95. This thing is completely drawing off the hard drive. It's not very right. realistic right. for what some of the experience, but it is a vision for what MTV News in a digital could be like. And Dave goes through the whole thing and he closes his door and the third, I got Brian and we talked for an hour. You could show Dave new things, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, I, I show him this and even though I've been told by Van Toffler, I'm in trouble. Okay. <laughs> but I'm also, I, I have other places to work. This is always my saving <laughs> grace. And it's also, it's part of the rock and roll. It's part of the fun. Yep, if you work yep, there, yep. if you work there and this is, allows you to do good work and I didn't think they were going to fire me, but they might have. They didn't. But Dave closing the door, and then we talked for an hour about this. And now I, I get some sort of back, you know, backdoor permission from Dave. Keep working on this quietly. He builds the website. And then we've got a number two person. Her name is Lee Shulman, who yeah. you knew. And Lee has an intern named Erica. Uh, and then I give Lisa money, and, and, and Tony Cologne helps us find money for Choose or Lose because we're still not approved to do news yet. Uh, and we hire Krista, Krista Schmidt. Yeah. Uh, and now it's Lee Shulman, intern Erica, and Krista Schmidt. I'm still a supervising producer of MTV News. Yeah, you're still running the channels. A, I have a day job there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing all that. But we're pushing now. And by this time, On Air is promoting things. And the rest of MTV, I don't want to slag everyone else, but I was good at getting the mentions on air because, you know, I used to supervise the scripts. And yeah. there's... <laughs> I knew how to not screw up the show. I knew how to not make the audience change channels with this boring blabber that nine out of 10 people can't act on, right? 
So quick, fast, dirty, done. And then that turned out, and then the summer of 1996, that we made the decision that I was going to join NTV Digital full-time. This was to like run chooseorlose.com and get ready for a January 1997 launch of covering daily news. Or this time I hired Robert Mancini, who I'd met. Because I'm like, where am I going to find a writer? Writers are always, good writers are always hard to find. Always hard to find. So I found Robert early. Uh, thank you, Carol Candeloro. And I paid Michael Shore to employ him so he wouldn't go anywhere else. You know, uh, to have him write for, for, for TV news while the on, online news was being envisioned while I'm hiring people. It's choose or lose. I'm in Chicago for the Democratic National Convention. You and I meet. Yeah. And, we hit it, and we hit it off. And I get your information. And I think I asked you then if you had any interest. So you immediately said, then I've got your, I've got you, I have Robert, I've got Lee and Krista and Erica in mine. I hire PK and Jeff at the last moment and it comes together. Uh, And one of the things I learned in management training was you need to hire people unlike yourself and unlike Mm -hmm. anyone else Mm -hmm. in the team. And so I am looking at a wide variety of types. Krista wasn't a music fan, but she was a master of list. So I want to hire a guy named Jeff Rapp. I want to hire him. You did not want me to hire Jeff. And you are going to be his boss. You're going to be a supervisor. And you're like, Michael, he doesn't talk. Right. I'm like, he talks. He's interesting. No, dude, really. Jeff Rob does not speak. And I said to you, he will. And what I loved was that three months later, you guys had a band. Together. Yeah, man. You're, it's just, you're so that, right. He, he was an interesting hire. And I don't remember the particulars. It was like if I was qualified, if I shut up long enough, he would say something. But putting that team together, you know, what a group of people. It was yeah. really fortunate. I already knew Lee, who was a very the opposite of me. You know, as I said, Lee saying, I have concerns would be like you and me standing in a chair screaming at the right. top of our lungs. Right. Right. She's a different personality, but she brought that to the table. Krista was an odd bird. We had Erica. Robert was pretty much the closest to me, if anyone on that team. He was a strong, assertive, believes in himself. My way or the highway guy, I was fine with that, you know, because you need people to have confidence in a startup like that. And I, you know, I piled an enormous amount of work on him and you, and you guys didn't know any better, so you did. <laughs> right. You know? Oh, man. it was. But I'd come up in hard news where you had to shoot, write, edit, and air two pieces a day at CBS and at ABC in Baltimore. So I believed. And it also, that, that's, that is the origin story. There's, <sighs> there's a lot more to it. Yeah. And a lot of detail. And there's other stuff to talk about digitally. And I was the editor-in-chief of MTV.com at some point. And, and that's where I met Ramon Dukes. Yes. And Ramon Dukes today runs uh, Polaris and ran news on his channel for a minute, like big name in hip-hop, just for context. This is one of my later favorite sort of MTV News digital stories. We were, by this time, we're number one for music news on the web. Right? Rolling Stone never woke up. You know, they just they just sat on their hands while yeah. we blew by them and took people like dip, like Basham. You know, thank you very much. We just we took it. You know, and and we were better and faster. And we had we had on air support. We we got that word out, and we get there, and we've got at some point. It's 1997, 98. We've got some good writers, but we don't have it in hip hop the way we have it in alt, the way we have it in hard rock, the way we have it in pop. We didn't have it in hip hop. At the same time, I'm overseeing 
all the editorial on the rest of MTV.com. I've got a young, talented editor named Jennifer Seanborn working for me. Yeah. And she's editing all the reviews. And I'm reading them. And I'm reading this hip-hop review, and I don't understand the jargon at all. And I want to know, do we know what we're talking about, or are we posing? I can't, because thou shalt, this is, this is something, you know, going back to how did any of us come to MTV, being a hardcore music fan about whatever it is you love, the worst thing anyone can be is a poser, right? And thou shalt not. So I go to Jennifer, and I said, this review, I don't remember who the artist was, how do we know we've got this right? Like, is this, is this right or what they're talking about? He goes, oh, yeah, there's a kid in some other part of MTV.com. I forget where he worked. He's a real hip-hop culture maven. I, I read everything by him. Who? His name is Ramon. I knew who Ramon was because every time I would walk through that section, everyone would be goofing around. And there'd be this one kid hunched over his computer working. All yeah. this kid did was work. Yeah. His name was Ramon. So once she tells me this, it's done. I go over, I introduce myself, I tell him what we do, I ask him what he thinks of MTV News' uh, hip-hop coverage. He's polite. <laughs> He's polite. I said, you know, I don't feel that we're as strongly into the culture as we are in other things. Now, I, what I don't know that you and I know now is I use the magic word with Ramon, yep. which was yep. culture. I didn't yep. know that. Yep. But, this, but I was just saying, we don't, we're not in the culture the way we are about other things. And I, I would like to up our interest and tell me about what you know and he holds forth. And then I said, if I can arrange a trade with your boss, would you be interested in coming to join MTV News? And he said, yes. And his boss went for it. There's so many incredible things that you led at my time there with you. I thought of two off the dome, the Jay-Z water for life with the United Nations or for heaven's sakes, I was at the UN with you of all places. We did the letters from the front where we were publishing soldiers' letters to really provide. Iraq, yeah, that, that was yeah. good. And I, I wonder if there's a, other examples of, I mean, just the kind of innovation and out-of-the-box thinking that, that you brought, that you led us to create on the reg, that come to mind that you might want to expound upon. The letters from the front, you know, so my father was a combat veteran. So I sort of grew up with, a, just with, through no choice, more than the average amount of awareness about uh, people who are fighting wars and who fights the wars. Right. That this mostly wars are mostly fought and people are mostly dying can't shave. That to me was an automatic and a sort of flashback to Tabitha and I going to Camp Lejeune Marine Base in 1993. The assignment was gays in the military. This is when don't ask, don't tell it came yeah. uh, And so this is pre-digital. Just getting that assignment and and saying the first thing I said was I want to do I want to work with Marines. Because this was back when one of the you know, prejudicial takes on gay men was that they were sissies. And so mm. I thought, okay, you know, sailors and air, airmen have got nice outfits, army, whatever. I want to go to, I want to go to Marine base and going there and making, making contact and meeting these people uh, and simultaneously having the, every Marine's official stance telling us what's wrong with being gay. And the moment the camera's off, these kids are running us down the middle of the road to, to come talk to us about how stoked that they're that we're there. And then you got gay guys in your unit and no one gives a shit. That was an interesting, interesting moment. It's still don't ask, don't tell. Meeting special forces guys, gay, who just returned from Iraq and putting that on the air and also finding a way to sympathetically represent the Marines' point of view, making that all work. Those are the, it was called Free Your Mind. Yeah. This thing I've been choosing, that was Free Your Mind. 
those are some interesting times. It's difficult to overstate the degree to which there was a vacuum for any of that kind of information for young people. There were so few other places to get any of that. Do you remember when I'm walking through the newsroom, this is like maybe almost my last year, and talking with Joseph Patel, and he says, are you familiar with The Great Day in Harlem? Like, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, well, we're going to go to Atlanta, get all the rappers together, and we'll do the same thing. And I looked at him and I said, how can I help? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, like, whatever you need. It's like MTV is going to recreate a great day. This is why you want to work there in the first place. That's that's the there's a one. We're going to teach our audience about a great day in Harlem through the lens of the Atlanta rap scene. That was I was just enormously excited to be a bit player helping support that online. Uh, but having you know, those kind of moments, choose or lose. You know when choose or lose started. I didn't. I told Dave I didn't want to be involved. I said I'm, I'm excited. I'm from Hard News, but I'm still freelance. I want to rock out. And then somewhere about halfway through, like we were, it was picking up momentum. The other media were criticizing. So he became defensive about it. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, and I jumped in. And my pee buddy's right over there. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> but at, at that time, I remember the first piece I got on the Electoral College. So what do you tell the MTV audience? Well, it's not a school. Those were exciting times, you know, being at George Bush headquarters on election night, 1992, all the regular Republicans are there and they've been mounting or drinking. All the kids, the young Republicans who were volunteering, they would walk over us one at a time because they wanted to talk yeah. because they felt the president should have put himself on MTV. Yeah. The president really didn't talk enough. Uh, Governor Clinton, but, the, but, the, but we love that these, because you people thinking later on thought MTV had a position. All these young Republicans got it. And they just kept coming over to, to hang with us and talk for a minute while they, before they ran back to the job because they wanted to touch base. I'm certainly glad you got into Choose or Lose. Changed my life. <laughs> if you were to plug your speed jack in the back of my head, I could tell you I was one level above the stairs. You're walking this way. I'm looking down. We're there. I remember exactly where you were. You came from the lower left. Just, just remember it. And then yeah, the, what was it an hour later that we heard Aretha Franklin rehearse? Yeah, I guess. Do you yeah, remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was such an overwhelming m meeting you, being there. I mean, I had just walked in. None of the people I worked with, right? I didn't work at MTV at the time. I worked at Lifetime. None of the people I came with were there yet. And then I pass all the cool kids with tattoos and cool stickers on their laptops. And I'm like, what? wait a second. This must be, you know, it was like, it was just amazing. Do you um, remember Lee Wald? Yes, a thousand percent. So for, yeah. so for anyone listening to this, we had someone who had loads of piercings. And when I was talking to the team before he we went, she said, you want me to tone that down? I said, no, I want you to amp it up. Because <laughs> here, here's how it is with the Secret Service. The sooner they, they can spot you from a distance, the sooner they know who you are, the easier it gets. I said, I want them to see MTV coming from 200 yards out. It, it's it's going to make our lives easier. And so she did it. They were great. The bomb squad guy flirted her up. I remember that. <laughs> well, they, also they had to check the metal. But no, we did not look like anyone else there. No way. Yeah. What is a key life lesson or life lessons that your tenure at News provided you? This came up a number of times, and it, and it ended up serving me well. I'm freelance, you know, and like I said, said before, I'm there for myself, and I'm not going to be abused. <laughs> and the short version, finding candles were really being difficult. I'm in Detroit, Michigan. I said, look, you know what, guys? We don't have to do this. They're like, what? I'm going to leave. And they go off to a room. They come back. 
then all of a sudden they're giving me everything I want. And then it turns out that I'm forgetting the lead singer's name, but he can do, he can swallow fire. And he want, now they want to do things for me and they're volunteering. Right. So I got, what's his name? The Roland Gift. Roland Gift. Roland, so they, they don't want me to see Roland's fire breathing. And we do this. And what I took from this and I use it on other shoots with judgment was I would sometimes really push back against being treated rudely. In one case, I was a big fan of the artist. And it was, we nearly came to blows. But it ended up, I ended up getting a big hug and I got everything I needed. The first time I covered a, a film thing was with Warren Beatty, and I'd never seen the Hollywood press corps. The level of obsequiousness, of sucking it up, of like their need to approve and adore. See, this isn't what any of us got into rock and roll for. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, yes, there are stars, and you're, you, you know, if Mick has a requirement, you, you give him some room, but none of us got into suck up shit from anybody. And I learned to do that with, with judgment. And it was assuring that the, you know, every single time that the artist gets it too. It's like, look, I'm, this is, I'm a fan. You know, I'm a fan. I'm not a journalist. I'm not working as a journalist. I'm a rock and roll fan. And learning that, you know, if that's what you're there for, I need to be, you know, treated like a fan. Like, you know, and and uh, that mattered to me. And it worked. It was an interesting place to do it. As I've been in other settings and other jobs with certain situations where you need to let someone throw a typewriter you know, or <laughs> break things. Uh, it's a different level of employment, you know. The rock and roll component and being able to like live in that space and work in that space and hire people in that space for 18 years was a great way to, uh, you know, somewhat avoid becoming an adult. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an Essential Industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And visit BenjaminWagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.